just noticed a dispatch character. That's right. Pretty nice. I noticed the owl's slash butterfly combination on it earlier. I really like the design. Here we go. Hello, welcome to a new episode of A Grand Reflection, and this episode is going to be really interesting because um, there's going to be a lot of things that we talked about before that we're going to incorporate. We've done that before, for sure, but uh, this one specifically is really interconnected. I think part of the reason for that is it is the last episode of three that I knew I was going to do before I even started the podcast. Um, which is to say the truth episode, the love episode, and this one, the creativity episode. We, we've already been through the other two, so, so it means wrapping it up. It means making a braid out of them and uh, interweaving them together, uh, because that's always how I viewed them. So, uh, so that's what we're going to do today, and uh, <laughs> I have a path forward, but to be honest, it took a little while to get the path because... There is uh, a thousand different ways that I could do this, to be honest. Um, there is no set direction. And, and I think that that's something that's probably good going forward for us to just realize is uh, we could say things in different orders. And the fact, like, if everything is an interconnected web, um, we do need to choose a pathway f- through it to go forward. But uh, there can be a good recognition that... Um, we don't need to do that in a certain order. Um, in this case, I'm going in a certain order because it's the order that I uh, discovered the stuff. Uh, so I'm kind of, in a way, sort of in a roundabout way, letting you guys in on the process and and kind of going chronological order as far as discovery. Uh, but again, there's no reason to have to go that way. It, you know, if it's this big interconnected web, like like this giant set of neurons, choosing one pathway is helpful, but only in so much as um, it gives us a path to go through. Not not so much as like it's the only way. And I'm repeating myself, which I'll do sometimes, uh, especially in this episode. I think because um, again, since there's no pathway, uh, since there's no right way to go. Sometimes you get you get on one spot and then it brings you back full circle to another one and then you get on another spot again. Um, and sometimes that's okay too. Sometimes it's okay to do loops because uh, that is what mulling it over is, right? It's, it's cycling through a few times over uh, until you find the best route out. Uh, being lost in the woods, so to speak, like that is, is not, not horrible as it sounds, uh, that's okay to do. So we might get lost in the woods a bit like that. I don't think too much because I have plotted a course. Uh, It's a windy course uh, that does kind of fold in on itself a little bit. Um, But for the most part, I think that we're going to be able to walk through it and get to this, get through this big, crazy forest of creativity. And it should be a lot of fun. We will be able to see a lot of sights on the way. I've got some landmarks uh, that I definitely want to hit. I have some 
little side paths and, and rabbit trails that we can go to if we've got time or if it seems appropriate. And um, so there's a lot of unknowns in here, but there are a few knowns that are going to uh, guide us and get us back out by the end. So uh, we ought to have a lot of fun and uh, I'm excited. So enjoy. Okay, so that music in the background, that was actually Liam uh, singing. Uh, when he came to visit, he did a kind of at-home impromptu concert thing for us. And uh, when I say us, I mean my friend Jane was there as well. So you probably heard both her and me kind of responding to his music. That was a really cool moment. And I think it really kick-started the conversation that I had with him, the one that I uh, posted a couple weeks before. Yeah, it's such a cool thing to enter into somebody else's creativity a little bit like that. And I think that that's actually a really good place to start is to kind of kick off the time that I spent with Kyle in town, both both hearing his music and also uh, having the conversation with him. One thing I can say for sure is that it was perfect timing that he showed up because I was at a roadblock. I can't remember if I mentioned this in the last episode in the intro, but I was looking at all this information that I had, all this great information about creativity, and I just couldn't figure out how to put it together. And uh, I get a text from him, and then we we talk about creativity. We get excited about it. I get to see what he's creating. And um, there's something about that collaboration. And that's not to say, you know, like, this is still my work, and he's still got his music that's his work. But it kind of spurred both of us on by both of us entering into each other's creative outlets for just a moment. It kind of helped us with our own. And I like that idea of being able to have your own autonomy with what you're doing, but also having it be informed and influenced and affected by all the other things that everybody else is creating. So that's really cool. I like that a lot. And I think that that really comes off. There's a love aspect there, right? A relational aspect. And I think that that's, really uh, something that I've come to learn more and more about creativity is is how much love matters in it. I think that that's something that I was looking at when I was focusing on love. I mean, inherently, there's this interplay between love and creativity. It kind of flows back and forth. And I think that the same's with truth. And hopefully that's what we can get to by the end of this, is kind of seeing how these all flow with each other. But for now, I guess I'll shelf that because we'll get to it later. But another piece of that conversation with Kyle was a little bit about being in a funk and trying to get past those blocks of creativity. For me, it was definitely, I was dealing with, and I do say this like like mild, but I was dealing with some depression. Nothing that was life debilitating or anything like that, but uh, more the, just the kind of depression that makes you just kind of loathing to wake up every morning and the things that were exciting aren't so exciting anymore and you're just treading water and moving on and doing fine treading water but also not really getting anywhere or, <laughs> or doing anything. You know, is really interesting. One of the things that really helped me this last week 
was to do the dishes. I know that sounds really stupid, but I'd started to realize with the finitude of existence that I had been putting off the dishes, but they're never, you know, it's still something that you have to do, right? Eventually you have to do it, but if you don't choose when to do it, then <laughs> the, the moment kind of chooses you. And then you're trying to gain this momentum of this creative process. And then all of a sudden, you know, like your roommate or something was like, hey man, we got to do the dishes now. And then you have to stop everything. You got to do it. So that was kind of a, a, an interesting moment, realizing just the interplay of depression, how these things that we put off because we feel like they're going to be too much or they're going to be too hard or too difficult. And then it ends up being that, you know, if we had just done them, it would have created some order that, that gives us a direction rather than just being in kind of the chaos and reactionary mode. I think I'll probably get into that a little bit later too when I talk about my other friend, Megan Myers, who uh, does a lot of art around town. So we'll get back to that. But I think the one other thing that really, really spurred on a lot of creative juices for this episode uh, when I was talking to Kyle was when he was talking about uh, being a sellout. And that really got me thinking about um, some of the hard lines that I've created, because that was one of the hard lines. It's like, I, I've kind of been idealistic with my creativity. Uh, there's a lot of things that I've created, but I've never made any sort of professional jump or anything like that, because to me, it's like, that's like being a sellout is like the worst thing. And I don't know if maybe that's... <laughs> <laughs> my parents being on like the front end of Gen X and the influence they had on me, like sell out in the nineties is like the worst thing that you could possibly do. But I think that I created this line of, you can't do that because that is opposite of creativity. But in talking to Kyle, I started to realize that, that that's not entirely true. And I started looking at some of the most creative people I know. And by and large, they do have a certain aspect where money is involved. And again, I think that's another thing that I want to get back to further down on the roadmap. But the, the long and short of it is what that got me thinking about was these ideas of opposites and these ideas of fragmentation and then synthesis that seems to happen with creativity. It's really interesting that in the truth episode, I'm talking about this left brain versus this right brain. And I kind of make this really hard line of like, well... The left brain doesn't doesn't do what we think it does. It sucks, but the right brain's awesome. And uh, <laughs> you know, as I'm like, as I'm reflecting on it, I'm going like, yeah, but me making even that distinction is the left brain process, which is really funny. So I want to get into those things a little bit more later too, like sort of on a meta level, looking at creativity and realizing that a lot of it is this synthesis of opposites, this emergence of a third. One uh, new source that, that I came across as I was looking up anything and everything I could find on creativity was this book from the 1960s by Arthur Kostler called The Act of Creation. And I'm going to mention probably a lot of different sources, uh, so I'll be sure to put those in the show notes. But Arthur Kostler's The Act of Creation, it's a little bit heady of a work. I admit I didn't get through the whole thing. But what I can tell, the second half is more kind of specific application rather than theory. So the first half that I did read was the theory, and it was super helpful. He created these frameworks that um, essentially he, he makes the point that humor and discovery and art are all creative processes, and they all act very similarly, which is to say that they create a fragmentation at the beginning. They sort of form a question in a way, and then they 
subvert your expectations in order to cause a better synthesis. So uh, the way humor does this, right, is like somebody, you know, says a joke, right? And you're like, well, where is this going? Like, what is, you know, you start asking questions. It gets you curious. You're trying to find what the answer is, but in more of a discovery way, in a playful way, right? And then, you know, you're going, you're going, and then you can't figure it out, right? You're like, what is it? Ah, ah, what is it? And then they say the punchline and you go, oh, of course. And so there's kind of this release of emotion. There's this tension that happens and then this release. And then the same thing happens with art, right? Except for art, it tends to be a little bit more subdued rather than a releasing of the tension. It's more of an incorporation of the tension, a, a, a settling in. So like uh, somebody will uh, present you with an art piece and um, it'll be a new view of the world and as you breathe it in the fragmentation of this new exposure to something that that you haven't seen before sort of forms itself into a, a new synthesis that then kind of reaches deep into you right and and you feel that just kind of that that deep deep abiding feeling of awe essentially and then so then he talks about discovery and discovery is kind of in between the two of these where there is a, there's a eureka moment, right? So you have a question and there's all of a sudden there's this new world and you don't know the answers to it, right? Just like the other two. And then through the exploring or through the scientific method or, or whatever act of discovery that you're doing, you, there gets new answers, which comes into a new synthesis and incorporation of the world around you, but also sort of this giddiness, right? The end result is uh, the eureka moment, the ah, I get it, which is kind of halfway in between uh, humor laughter and halfway in between a uh, artistic awe. So yeah, in him relating those three, I thought that was really cool to see that there are really blurred lines between fun, between exploration, and between amazement. And within each of those three is a splitting off or a fragmentation and then a new synthesis in order to have something that wasn't there before. So that's really cool. And I think that this is overall really, really lines up with everything that I've seen about where creativity comes from. It's the synthesis of opposites. But the interesting thing with that too, you know, like you can look at a ton of different frameworks for this, these, these opposites, uh, uh, chaos and order, art versus craft, rest versus busyness, Apollo versus Artemis, uh, Eros versus Thanatos. You know, you can get into mythology. You can look at fate versus destiny light and dark, all that sort of stuff. One of them that I really want to get back to in a minute is spirit and soul. But first I want to just kind of bring this home, this, this synthesis of opposites. We even know this on just a very close and fundamental level. Like as kids, you know, they give us finger paints, right? And they, they give us like all the primary colors and then they give us just like a blank sheet of paper and it's just like, ooh, total freedom, right? You can do whatever you want with it. And so, you know, so you're a little kid, you dip your finger in one of the colors, you swirl it around, you dip your finger in another color, you swirl it around, and then they start to mix a little bit and you go, oh my gosh, new colors. Where did these come from? This is amazing. There's something new here. And then you get really excited and you throw in more colors and more colors and you keep mi mixing. And then all of a sudden it gets like really muddy and uh, all of a sudden it's not pretty anymore. It's just brown. And so you learn pretty quickly that it's not about resolving the opposites so much as it is about getting them into synthesis, about, about having them butt up against each other and swirling together a little bit, kind of a, a, a bit of a yin and a yang kind of thing. I guess that's another opposites, right? Yin and yang. 
or male and female or gosh you could just you could go infinite with these things but you know this this idea of merging but it's more about a contact point it's more more you know uh not to say that one isn't found in the other you know the, the yin and the yang symbol is is kind of a, a perfect way to look at this because you, each one has a hint of the other in it but they are still separate identities they are still their own thing like uh, when you look at the color wheel right because that's the next thing they teach you is you start to find out that actually the most beautiful things the most complementary colors are those that are opposite of each other so there, there's something about getting the most opposite things and bringing them together that creates the most beauty for us taking that even a step further is the color wheel is a wheel so it's a cycle and this is a really really cool thing i think too there's this other book that i read called of arcs and circles and <laughs> sorry guys it's not out yet but it will be out soon and i'll put a uh, a link maybe a goodreads link to it or something uh in the notes but it's called he called it arcs and circles because he's taking a lot of reflections on zen gardens and being in the presence of nature and and also just kind of mourning the way that we've lost something in our our modern modern industrial age and basically what he gets down to it is the thing that we've lost is the cycles it's not so bad that there is death as long as there's life again you know he talks about the seasons like there's rhythms there's times of scarcity and times of abundance and it's the cycling through those rhythms that gives them all meaning if we're stuck in any of them in any one given point it it kind of falls apart it doesn't feel right it you know there needs to be emotion to it so with that i think that that really brings me to the next person i had a conversation with which is megan myers uh and the reason that that is applicable is uh she started this really cool thing called the creativity shakeout so if you're here in bend definitely join if you can get up and if you have any inclination at all to try to be physical because what it is is it's a run club now she's very clear about you, you can be any skill level you can even just walk it if you need to but Every Tuesday at 7 a.m. sharp, they uh, they get up and shake it out and try to get the creative juices flowing, get themselves in motion. It's a really cool thing for a couple of reasons. One, it really gets you aware of the, the seasons because you're getting out and about and you can tell like, okay, all of a sudden it's getting dark when we're getting here, when it used to be like full sun. Okay, it's a little colder. You know, I got to adjust. I got to get a sweatshirt on now. All that sort of stuff. But two, and and this is the reason she made it, is she found that she had her most creative no- moments when she got in motion, when she started moving, when she was running. So she's inviting others into that and making it sort of a collaborative thing, and making it sort of a thing where everybody is free to just sort of talk about their collaborative efforts. So I admit I've only gone once, and when I went, it was amazing. I ended up talking with Megan herself, and. We had this really, really good conversation about just creativity as a whole. I mentioned how Kyle had come into town, and I mentioned how uh, we started talking about all these different things, and then that just kicked off more and more conversation. And one of the big things that we talked about was spirit and soul. And I know that sounds really metaphysical, religious, something like that, but I want to break it down a little bit more. If you listen to the truth episode, the shorthand that I'm using for spirit and soul is left brain and right brain. So left brain being the spirit and right brain being the soul. Now, I'm not just getting this out of the blue, out of nowhere. There's actually a lot of good uh, historical references for this, uh, etymologies of words that can really help us here. So spirit is... A lot of languages, spirit, it's interwoven with breath or wind, a lot of times a shorthand for life. 
So, uh, for instance, the ancient, the Greek is pneuma, which is where we get a lot of, you know, like pneumonia or mnemonic device. It's the lungs, right? The breath. And the Hebrew is ruach, you know, the breath that, that God breathes in to man, and then he has motion. So that's really, that's what spirit is. Spirit is motion. Spirit is the doing, the, the moving forward. Uh, we can see this in different ways that we talk about, like somebody is working in the spirit of someone else or the spirit of the nation even. You know, like we, we say that they're taking actions representing something. Uh, we even see this in terms of ghost stories, right? The spirits are moving. You can almost look at ghosts as the actions that a person did in the world having an echo after they're gone. And I could get deep into that. Probably we'll say bookmark for that one because I got a cool Halloween episode. I think that, that that would be really cool to talk about. So bookmark on that. But the long and short, yeah, is the spirit is the thing that makes us do, 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 do. By and large, we're pretty dang spirit driven. We've got a lot of spirit, you know, the American spirit. Woo. Yeah. Go get her done. Right. But there's this other side, which is the soul. And the soul is a lot of times translated as psyche. So there's a lot interwoven there with the subconscious, the stuff of dreams, the stuff of metaphors, and the uncertain, right? Uh, obviously, the like, right brain kind of things. When you say somebody's got soul, they got, you know, you're not saying that they, uh, you know, when you say somebody has spirit, you're like, they got spunk, they get, they, they keep going. But when you say somebody's got soul, you're like, you're, you're more talking about their inner being. They're ta- you're talking about the, the depths of who they are, their isness. So you have this kind of contrast with spirit and soul between being and doing. And the tricky part, the tricky part is it's the being, it's the paying attention and the noticing that gets us our creative ideas. Now, I have to admit, I tend to be very, very far in the soul. And so I have a bit of a, of a bias where I love to come up with ideas and I don't really love to carry them out. And uh, a lot of times I have an aversion to anything that is spirit related. Now, part of that is because I spent a lot of time with a stifled spirit, just to say I had chronic fatigue and there wasn't much that I could do. So there was a lot of being. So me and Megan are talking about this and we're talking about the challenges because problem is because we're so driven by the spirit of creativity, we get stuck in this doing, right? And this is especially hard in the modern day and age because there's so much busy schedules, there's so much time constraints and there's so much money involved. Right. So I guess the question becomes, and the question that we were kind of mulling over was how do you get past this feeling, this need to accomplish when it comes to your creativity? This is something that anybody who has tried to create anything has felt, or or, or even just in general in life. What if it's not good enough? Feelings of shame, like what if I'm a fraud? What if what if I can't get this to come together? What if I can't keep up the reputation that I've gained for the works I've already done? What if I can't make another good work? Uh, what if I'm just stuck? We try to mitigate that by more doing. So we go, okay, well, I got to do it this way. And we create a game plan. And then we start narrowing ourselves because we go like, it has to be done this way. This is the only successful way to do it. And then we get more and more narrowing and narrowing and narrowing. And the problem is at that point, we're stifling the soul, the part of us that sees new and uncommon connections, the part of us that is connected to the everything, I guess. (laughs) There's no no other easy way to put that. The part of us that is excited of the new and the novel, which essentially is what we need for creativity. To create something new in the world, we need to be connected to the unknown. 
And yet, what we get caught up in, more often than not, is this spirit-driven process that becomes narrower and narrower and narrower, this idea that this is what has to be done, that renders our creativity ineffective, or if not ineffective, repetitive and stale and stuck. We start making the same thing over and over again because it's the safe bet. We start thinking more about how much we can sell something for rather than what we're bringing into the world. And then it becomes dead. It becomes unexciting. It feels like a chore. It feels like work. It doesn't feel filling. Yeah, we were talking about this a little more. How do you switch that up? How do you change it? And the big thing that I was starting to realize with this conversation and coming off of the conversation with Kyle in this synthesis of opposites is like, the spirit isn't bad. I have a tendency to think the spirit's bad, but it's helpful because at the end of the day, if you're not doing anything, if you're not driving towards something in the actual real world, rather than the realm of ideas in the realm of being, then you're never actually going to create anything anyway. You do have to channel the soul, I think, but there's still work to be done, right? So, so where do you find the balance? And that kind of got us into Elizabeth Gilbert's Big Magic. This is a book that I read years ago, and I absolutely loved it. I was, I was given it by my friend Matt, who is a wonderful artist and has been for years and years. He, for a while, actually brought me in as sort of this apprentice to... Uh, at the time, we were doing a lot of really interesting things like some vinyl work and doing the seasonal paints on shop windows. But in retrospect, really what he was showing me, I got out of it, was how to live a life full of creativity. So when I left to uh, move to Bend, he gave me this book, Big Magic. And if you're interested in the ideas of Big Magic, but you don't want to read a whole book, uh, Elizabeth Gilbert has this really cool, I think it's about 15 minutes, TED Talk that goes over a lot of her main ideas. Definitely worth a watch. Uh, one of her big ideas with Big Magic is the idea of the muse, of the genie. The main point that she makes is in the modern day when we talk about genius, we talk about a person being a genius. We talk about their innate talent, like, oh, they were born for this, and wow, they're one of the few. But throughout most of history, that's not really how creativity was viewed. Especially the Greeks and Romans viewed it as, rather than an innate skill, more a possession. So, and that sounds kind of creepy, but like, not like a demon possession, a good possession, a channeling of a spirit, which, you know, there you go, back to spirit. But what she kind of reaches the etymology of, uh, so instead of being a genius, you have a genius. And that's where we get the root words for genie or jinn. There are a lot of different traditions that have these kind of magical spirits that uh, affect you and get you going on a track, get your spirit moving in a way that it wouldn't be able to otherwise. So there's two things with this that's really cool. One of them is it does sort of hijack our own spirit in a way. The part of our spirit, the part of our left brain that gets fear-driven, that goes, what if I'm not enough? What if I can't do this? Because the whole idea is it's not you that's creating. You are just channeling the muse. So the pressure is kind of off because if you create something that is crappy, you just kind of go, well, you know, it was a bad muse that time. You know, maybe I'll find a better muse later. And on the other side of that, it's really cool too, because you don't get so much of the sense of fame. You, you don't get so hot-headed because if you make something really cool, really good, there's really only just gratitude left. Like, wow, yeah, I was really lucky. That was a really good muse that time. That was a really good genie. 
And it's cool because it switches it up. It, it lets you off the hook and turns it more into a unfolding, a never-ending thing, a practice. Because the idea is that you you just become better at channeling good muses. Uh, so you make yourself ready. You pick up the brush day after day because you want to be understood as somebody who picks up the brush by these uh, spirits. You want the spirits to preferentially choose you because you are honoring them. You are continuing to let them channel through you. Because the idea is that it's not going to channel through you, it's going to channel through somebody else. So that's her idea. I kind of came to this realization that I think that there's a slight modifier there, for me personally, at least from what I know, is to say that the muse maybe isn't a spirit really out there, but it's more our own souls, uh, which, as far as I can tell, seem to be connected to the world as a whole. Because they are so interested in the unknown and the unwordable and the the sacred and the... uh, the metaphorical, the mythological, they are able to bring things in that we otherwise wouldn't have access to. They're kind of tied to the soul of the world. They're our individual soul tied to the soul of the world. And it's a really cool thing then, because if we kind of look at them as our own personal muses, there's a cool hijacking that can take place. It, it lets us put that right brain back in control, which if you remember from the Truth episode, that's really the only hierarchy that works, ironically, because the right brain isn't interested in hierarchies. It's interested in letting everything have a part of the whole, seeing the goodness of all things and being okay with the tension of opposites. So on a meta level, it's okay with the left brain. The left brain, the uh, spirit-driven part of ourselves, the doing, doing, doing part of ourselves, if it's in control, it shuts out everything else because it's interested in the straight and narrow. It's interested in the right answers, the only answer that there could be. It's interesting in everything lining up, no contradictions, all that sort of stuff. And so because the right brain works differently than it, it doesn't understand it and it shuts it out. So when it's in control, when it is the main thing, it becomes the only thing. Whereas if the right brain is in control, it lets everything be incorporated. So really the trick is to get the right brain in its proper place so that the left brain can also work well and and become a part of everything. Now, again, that creates a challenge, right? Because, okay, well, the left brain doesn't want to cooperate. So how do you do it? Well, a lot of it is just tricking it, rolling with it and giving it a bait and switch, getting a lot of trickster energy, a lot of, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the trickster archetype, but it'd be like a coyote for the Native Americans or uh, Anansi the spider. There's a lot of different traditions. Loki is another one. The trickster, which is the kind of the underdog, the one who gets things done, but maybe unconventionally, and is okay with people misunderstanding it, does its own thing, despite what other people think. So channeling that energy can be really helpful, because just in Megan Meyer's creativity shakeout, the left brain agrees with that, goes like, yeah, that's great. If we get up early, we make a commitment, we are running, we're going to get all these ideas, because that's where ideas come from. It comes from the doing. We're going to get it. And really... (laughs) What's really happening is we're just causing the spirit to get distracted. It has something to do so that if it's running, if if it's focused on, okay, I got to get around the next corner, or I got to keep up with this person, or, uh, you know, whatever, then it's getting busy running in circles. And we can let it just do that for a while. We can let it have a thing to do so that it's not giving us a bunch of fear because it doesn't like not having something to do. So if there's not something to do, it starts doing its own thing in terms of freaking out and saying that you're not enough, that you need to do more, all that kind of stuff. So that's where we can, so to speak, channel our own personal muse is by finding these ways to trick the spirit. And so really the the funny thing about that is there's all these 
standard ways of trying to get on top of things, trying to make creativity work by doing commitments and schedules and all those sort of things. And in a weird way, it does create containers for creativity, but it's helpful to recognize that it's not the things themselves. It's more appeasing the spirit so that it can spin its wheels for a little bit until we have something to tell it to do that is actually more productive to the creativity. So I thought that was kind of a fun thing. Another piece of that, though, is kind of getting away from the end results, right? Because the spirit is interested in end results, but the soul is interested in unfolding. It's interested in infinite games. We talked about infinite games before. I forget which episode, but this idea between finite and infinite games, this is really where love lies, is love doesn't have any limits. It just continues to spur on more movement and ideas, and it continues to enter into being in the motion of life and finds new ways forward. It's inherently creative. But to enter into that, I think, is really entering into the muse, is going more towards process rather than results. And uh, having an infinite game like that, I think, is really at the core of what a flow state is. And I mentioned flow states before in the truth episode and kind of did a call back to Neowise. And I think that this is where we really get that active creation stuff coming through, that discovery end and how it's related to art. Because discovery, that sort of childlike wonder that brings new ideas into the world, it has questions in the moment. There are limits and constraints in the moment, but each question leads to a new question, leads to a new question, leads to a new question. And it's never really done. The work continues and it's the enjoyment of the unfolding rather than the destination. You never hear a scientist go like, okay, well, we found five new planets. I guess we're done because five is a nice round even number and it fits well in a structure. Okay, yeah, but what if there's more? You know, (laughs) Um, That's always the question, like, but what else? But what else? But what else? And in a weird way, yeah, that's what flow is. That's how flow works, is this idea that the motion of it is the thing itself. So that's the weird irony is the soul craves the motion, and the spirit craves the static. So the spirit is constantly moving, the spirit is constantly doing, but what it wants, what it craves, is what it doesn't have, which is the end point, the being. The spirit is never gonna reach that because life is in motion, life continually moves. Perfection isn't really ever reached, at least not as far as we know in this life, and even if it was, it wouldn't be life anymore because it would be static, it would be unmoving. So the soul, on the other hand, is the one piece of ourselves that is static, that is unmoving. It is the us-ness beneath the us. The core, the is-ness of a thing is its soul. You know, you could almost look at it as the core being of any individual person or thing. And because that's static, it, again, kind of going back to the yin and the yang sort of thing, you find the opposite in the thing itself. The dot of the soul is the spirit, is the motion. Because it's static, Because it's unchanging, it is interested in the motion and the change, it thrives in it. That's kind of where we're at, but recognizing that's what the soul does, that brings me to this other book called The Artisan's Soul. Now, this book's a really interesting one because he's working from a Christian framework, but honestly, he didn't really get into that much except uh, maybe one or two chapters. And all the things that he said were super applicable to just in general, everything that I've seemed to be understanding about the creative process as a whole. And one of the things that he says is, a soul that's free and alive is a soul that creates. I really like that because there's two things there. One, freeing up the soul from the constraints of the spirit. Sorry for the beep. That would be my my coffee is done. Perhaps this is a good point to pause for a quick minute. And actually, 
now that I'm looking at it, we are, whew, we are at an hour 23. So I think, I think <laughs> I'm going to get my coffee. Okay, so I got my coffee. And it turns out we're not at an hour 23. We're only at 45 minutes. For some reason, the recording started way, way, way in the future. And yeah, uh, wow. Talk about a flow state, right? I could not tell you the difference between 45 minutes and an hour and a half. Uh, that's literally double. That's crazy. So yeah, I was wrong. We were not at an hour 23. No, you weren't going crazy. You have not been listening for an hour 23. You were only listening for 45 minutes. Now that is still quite a bit. So if you need a break, this is probably a perfect time to just pause it and go do something else. But if you'd like to keep going, I'm just gonna still do this in one go. I've got my coffee now, so cheers. I made that super loud so you could hear it. <laughs> but yeah, we're just gonna keep going with it. I think that, why not? Uh, let's make this thing an hour and a half. I think we're about halfway through at least where my roadmap is. Obviously, it depends on how many little crazy rabbit trails we get on, but we'll get there. So the artisan soul, yeah, a soul that's free, alive, is a soul that creates. Yeah, I think that's really true. It's a matter of getting rid of those fears. Rather than diving into the fears, finding ways to distract the spirit so that it can feel like it's doing something, the big thing that that means is really just creating and creating and creating. Being interested in possibility over results, because obviously there is zero possibility of something good coming out if you don't do anything. And there is some possibility of something good coming out if you do. So weirdly, the worst action is no action. And beyond that, if you are looking at quantity over quality, it becomes a lot more about entering into the flow state, about just doing rather than worrying about results. So I think that's a good way to be free and alive. You're in motion, so you're alive. You got the spirit moving, but you're also free. You're not constrained to those fears and needs for perfection. The other thing that the artisan soul talked about was that everybody is creative. This is also something that Elizabeth Gilbert talks about. It's the muse that you're channeling. Everybody can do that. And the really cool thing that the artisan soul expands upon is, look, if you really look at it, human beings are just creative. There's no way around it. The things that we do, we are not like animals. There is something different within us that brings new things into the world. And whether or not you think of yourself as creative, you are creative. Whether that is creativity being found in shuffling your schedule around so that you can have time for friends, whether that creativity is in finding ways to do your job more efficiently so you can be more lazy about it, whether it is baking something new from scratch because you didn't have all the ingredients on hand, finding a new route to work because a uh, road was blocked. There are countless different ways that we create new things, that we find new solutions, enter into the unknown, and come out the other end with a new understanding of the world around us. There's no way around it. You are a human being, so you are creative. Uh, you just are. And this interestingly started me on this path of thinking about the episode of superheroes. We talked a lot about the idea of gods versus humans. And I thought that was interesting thinking of big magic and almost sort of thinking about being channeled by a god, this muse. And then, uh, you know, again, thinking about the reason that the Marvel stuff works is because it's the everyday people. There's something in us that feels more connected to that humanness. When I was thinking about that, there's some through lines here. If everybody's an artist, and the 
thing about superheroes is they're changing the world around them. And if creativity is changing the world around you or understanding the world around you in a different way, in a way that changes other people, that makes them inspired, then that really is where the whole hero thing lies. I think that's kind of the hope. And maybe that's the love aspect of creativity too, uh, in another way, is you see something very amazing within your soul and you can't bear seeing that truth just be by itself. There's this want for it to be out in the world and there's this want for others to understand it too. This feeling that if I don't get this out, then nobody's going to see this and people are going to be the less for it. So in a certain way, there is this heroic act involved with creativity because it is stepping into the unknown, the things that people are usually uncomfortable with. It's dealing with your own fear and your own anxieties in a very deep, deep way for the sake of others. It really is a loving act. Now, I know that you might also say, okay, but not everybody creates for the sake of other people. Some people create for the sake of themselves. They just, something in a private room and then it's their own thing. And that's true, but I don't think that's any less heroic or any less loving. It's just directed in a different spot. That sort of creativity is something where it's a lot more of a self-love. And to be clear, it's not an ego kind of love, not a I'm awesome, I'm amazing. It's more of a self-care kind of thing, uh, more of a giving yourself the things that you need in order to thrive, which again has ripples back out into the real world. Even if nobody sees your creations and you're just keeping them to yourself, you are changed by them. And then you live and breathe in the world in a different way. So really this creativity that we bring forth has a huge effect on the world around us, at least as a collective whole. But in order to enter into that, obviously I mentioned it a couple of times, is the fear and letting go of that fear. And this is where I get into another book that I read, which is called Art and Fear, applicably. A wonderful, wonderful book. I really suggest picking it up. Not that long of a read, but honestly, I probably highlighted three quarters of it. Really condensed, really, really wise. Lot, a lot of cool things. I could do a whole episode just on that one. In fact, most of these sources, I think I could do a whole episode on just the one source. And maybe I will one day. I don't know. That could be an idea. But uh, the main thing with Art and Fear is, is it's really getting into deep. How do we get rid of that spirit of fear? And how do we get into the soul-filling drive and spirit work that is not self-conscious, but is transformed towards a wholeness, a creativity, a bringing forth of new things in the world? And uh, one of the things that he talks about that's really cool and really encouraging is there's no faking it when it comes to being an artist. Either you are an artist or you aren't an artist. And the defining line is, do you take action? Do you create art? If you make art, then you're an artist. There's no imposter syndrome there. And so in one sense, there's really no reason to fear because if you're doing it, you are it. But at the other end, there's this <sighs> tremendous stakes as well because inherently what you're doing with art is you are bearing your soul to the world. You're taking the things that are internal and you're making them external for everybody to see. And that does open you up to a lot of judgment, a lot of criticism, a lot of new fears, like fears of lack of acceptance and fears of uh, how it's going to be received. So talks a little bit about that too. Really, the freeing thing is that you're never going to succeed. <laughs> <laughs> I, that's kind of what he gets at with it is the vision in your brain of what you have uh, or what you could create is always going to be better than what you do create. At first, that sounds horrible. So I'm always going to fail. I'm always going to fail at whatever vision I have. 
But that's only if you're stuck in that mode of outcome, in that mode of getting results. If you're more interested in process, that means it becomes an infinite game. It means that there's never an arriving. There's always a circling around it. There's always a, a certain degree of failure in a way, but also a certain degree of there's no way to actually fail. There is a Japanese concept called wabi-sabi, which is great. This idea that the imperfection is part of the perfect beauty of the thing. So there's a perfection in the imperfection. And that's kind of a, a cool way to hijack the spirit as well, is to just go like, okay, let's redefine perfect. Let's look instead at how there is an interplay between the success of this piece and the failure of this piece. And how on a meta level, that's also synthesized in art. So, so that's kind of an idea there. And then, you know, when I was thinking about this, like success and failure, it reminded me of this quote by Richard Rohr that is, we are transformed by two means, either through tremendous love or tremendous suffering. Through these tremendous down points or these tremendous like up points. And there's kind of this myth of the suffering artist that like you have to be like deep in the dark depths of your soul, you know, like that it's dangerous work and you are going to be just tormented. We tend to romanticize that a little bit. And I don't think that's entirely untrue. There is a certain degree where that is something that is a creative alchemy. Uh, in fact, going back to Kyle, there was a story that he had when we weren't recording about <laughs> randomly getting pulled over, accused by Texas cops of having marijuana, which he knew nothing about, but being essentially detained for 24 hours. And I don't think it was even quite that long, but long enough to jolt him awake. And he just had this huge connection to life and creativity and, and love and, and all this stuff afterwards, because it just kind of was such a ridiculous situation and needless bit of suffering that it jolted him awake. So I think that there is some truth about that of the suffering artist, but I don't think it's the only part of the story. I think that there is another side, which is the tremendous love. And uh, maybe that connects to the stuff I was talking about before with the collaboration, the getting involved in each other's lives, or even just too, just getting involved with, with seeing the suffering of the world and wanting to relieve it in some way, wanting to provide a new perspective, uh, a way of hope for people. I think that there is a really cool thing there. I've seen this in my personal life. There were two things that I absolutely, absolutely loved growing up. One of them was BattleBots and the other one was skateboarding. <laughs> and I know that those don't seem related at all at first, except that they're both like teenager in the early 2000s, quintessential. But um, there is a through line there because the thing about skateboarding is one, it is an infinite game. There is no set endpoint. It's no like, okay, well, I landed the double kickflip and we're done. I, I succeeded. There's always a new trick to try. And even within that, there's more. Like even if you nail the kickflip and you know exactly how to do it, there's new variations on it. And there's new ways that you could flip off of. There's new ways that you could link that kickflip to another thing, right? So, so it is an infinite game in that way, but it also is really, really, really dependent on the failure. Because for every trick that you land, you probably have, oh, 30, 40, 50 that you fail. You could try the same trick all day and not even get it. And then you come back bloodied and bruised, but uh, there's these individual moments where something just works. And you go, oh my gosh, that was amazing. And you celebrate and everybody else sees it. Everybody else in the skate park knows what it was. We're like, yeah, woo, this is amazing. And, uh, and it makes all of those times when it didn't really work out 
worth it. But the thing is, is all those times when it didn't work out, where it brought you up to that one moment that did really work, that did happen. And so I think that uh, in that sense, there's a lot of creativity there. And just it works for me as a really good microcosm of the way of, of entering into creativity that is not so much based on the results. The irony is when you stop worrying about results and you just keep doing, 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 and are okay with the suffering, okay with the failure, okay with those times when things don't come together and you just kind of stick with it, eventually something does stick. Eventually you do land the trick and you find something really cool, something really amazing. And then the thing is, is you get better and better. And that's kind of where it comes through with the battle bots. So if you're not familiar with battle bots, definitely look up a video. They're tons of fun. It's people creating these little robots, these little microcontroller robots and putting them in a rink and having them fight each other to see who could win out. And one of my favorites was this little one called Biohazard. It didn't look like any of the other BattleBots. It's this little tiny thing. And all it has is it has this shovel that flips other ones and get them stuck up upside down. And then it just rams them into these saw blades that are in the side of, this <laughs> side of the uh, rink. And it's so funny because it was one of the worst ones at first. It was definitely the underdog. There's something about the underdog, right, that we just absolutely love. But th the reason the underdog works, and there's um, Malcolm Gladwell talks about this a lot. He's got this book called, uh, I think it's called David and Goliath. I think. Pretty sure that's what it's called. Anyway, <laughs> I'll look it up. It'll be in the show notes. But he talks about the power of the underdog. And I think why there's a lot of power there is we actually learn more from our failures than we do from our successes. So with BattleBots... <laughs> what would happen? You have this biohazard and this first season that he was in this show, he just lost and lost and lost. But because of that, he kept refining it. So he kept going like, okay, well, this thing didn't work. So let's, you know, let's lower it to ground a little more. Okay, let's make the swing arm a little stronger. Okay, let's actually lower the weight because we want it to be spry and fast, all this kind of stuff. And, and eventually, because of all those failures, it becomes like one of the most successful little robots in this whole thing uh, over the course of however many seasons it had. That idea of sacrifice, I think, is a really cool thing to see. You see that in a lot of folklore, a lot of mythologies. This idea that you kind of get a cycle of things, right? So it's going back to the cycles of creation uh, that I mentioned before. You get things like the flood in the biblical narrative. You get things like Ragnarok. There's this story, this Native American story that's really cool. is this woman in a cave. She's weaving this tapestry that is like all the stories of the world, and then she has to go to the back to stir these seeds that are all the seeds of the world. And if she doesn't stir it on this pot, then the seeds will burn and then those plants will die. So she she stops the seeds from burning. She comes back and there's this wolf that sits at her side. And uh, while she's gone, it is shredded the tapestry and the entire tapestry is gone. So she takes a moment, she looks at the tapestry and then she feels the loss of it. And then she looks at all the pieces and gets excited because she can see a new tapestry coming from the old. She sees an even better picture of all the stories of humanity, of, of the story of the people as a whole. And the kind of the end of the story is, and this is good. This is good that it continually gets destroyed because this happens over and over and over again. You know, every time she goes to stir the seeds, the tapestry gets destroyed. It's good that this continues to happen because the moment that she completes the tapestry, the world comes to an end. So it's more about the cycles of, of creation and destruction, the, the chaos and the order and all that. And intermixed with this is this archetype of the shaman. Now I know that sounds, again, like it's another spiritual thing, but like, just bear with me. The, the archetype of the shaman, you could also look, there's a lot of figures throughout a lot of different mythologies that are like this. One of the big ones is Odin. 
But the shaman, they're a journeyer. They're the types of people that go into the unknown, cross the line between the known and the unknown, and bring something back as a gift to the rest of the people. They tend to be on the fringes of society. They tend to be a little bit of the outcasts. And they tend to be really sacrificial, really self-sacrificial, because there is a cost of going into the unknown. It puts a mark on your soul. But part of that is the shaman is called the uh, wounded healer. Because they were wounded and they've worked on their own selves, they can heal others. And the interesting part of it is the way that they heal others is through their own, the own wounds that they have, the own scars. Their scars are the things that help other people to heal from their own wounds. Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting thought. The sacrifice involved, the structures, and the kind of going into the underworld and coming back up through. Tons and tons of stuff on that, but I'll, I'll kind of shelve that for now. Maybe we'll get back to that another time. This, this idea of sacredness and ritual really brings me to my friends Sam and Zach. These guys are super cool. They used to live here in Bend, but they moved to Ohio, and they have a yurt. And this yurt is, uh, if you're not familiar with what a yurt is, it sits on a platform and it's built up from the sides. It's really just kind of a framework. And then you have this tarp system that goes around it. So it's a permanent structure, but it's only semi-permanent in the sense that you can actually tear it down and rebuild it somewhere else. But they live in this yurt. It is a lifestyle that has to be a lot more intentional because they're a lot more aware of the cycles and the seasons because their walls aren't as thick and they, there's a sunroof. It's a small area and so they have to find ways to get electricity to get heat uh, all these sorts of things but this really fits for them because what they are interested in is really connecting to those cycles of life really connecting to the seasons really connecting to the life and death of everything i think one of the big things that i can say for sam and zach is they really live in a if not constant flow state, a state that is much more in flow than most of us do. And a lot of it is because of those cycles and because of that sacrifice. Now with Zach specifically, he is working right now at a roastery, coffee roastery. And this just speaks to to how they work. It's like roasting coffee at his job was not enough. He wanted to enter into a, a cycle, a craft at home. So he roasts from home as well for just his own personal beans. And he got into this in a really cool way, uh, just with this cool company based out of California called Sweet Maria's. Highly recommend them, by the way. The reason I recommend them is because Sam and Zach sent me a care package, a really cool care package with a beginner's kit to roast my own beans. And I've started doing that. And the reason this came about is because we were just talking and we were in a relationship talking about life. And I was talking about my challenges with caffeine because caffeine tends to be very spirit driven. It gets us going and moving. And as a whole, I wanna take a stand against that, but I recognize the value of it. Now in retrospect, I'm also recognizing that <laughs> this was sort of a thing where I was starting to see the hints of synthesis. I didn't wanna fully let go of it because I felt like there was a value there, but I wanted to reintegrate it, make it a little bit more balanced. And part of that that I had been doing was I have been grinding my own beans and I have been, I've got like a special uh, water boiler to get the temperature exactly right. And I've really kind of been tinkering with it, got a scale so I can weigh out the beans and I'm being a little bit more exact and it creates an intentionality, it creates a patterning. But uh, I was talking to, uh, to Zach about this and he said, hey man, uh, you should start roasting your own beans. In fact, you know what? I'm gonna actually send you a starter kit. So he sent me a starter kit. He sent me, it's basically a popcorn popper and you throw green unroasted beans into it and you uh, you heat them up until they get to where you want them. 
And then in about a day, they've, they've aerated enough, aged enough in about 24 hours that uh, you can go ahead and grind them up and roast them. And it's pretty amazing. The results are pretty good. I've only done it a couple times so far, and it's been wonderful. But it's really cool because it's a gift that he gave me that extended what I already wanted to do with my coffee, which was to make it more intentional, to have a bit more of a sacrificial element. Because since there's that 24 hours of wait, I have to be a lot more intentional about what sort of coffee supply I have and I have to take some time to roast it if I want some. I can't just go pick it up at the store and call it good. I mean, I could, but I, I kind of refuse to, right? It's a rule, I guess, that I've made, uh, a spirit-driven rule, which isn't always bad. All that to say, though, with them entering into these cycles and these rhythms, what comes out of that is so cool, is this generative type of living. And I mean that in the truest sense. Like when you say generosity, when somebody is generous, that's the same root as generative. So because of their generosity towards me, there's this new thing generated in my life, this new ritual, this new cycle, this new set of uh, sacrifice that brings a ton of meaning. And every time, I, every time I make my coffee, I feel connected to them. I feel a little bit more opened up. I feel in balance. And that's because of their generosity. And I was talking to them, and we got on this conversation about flow. And it was really cool because essentially what flow is you know, as we talked about it in the truth episode, flow is getting into this right brain state, getting into this soul state that is in motion, you know, so the spirit's involved, but because the spirit's not in charge, you're making new connections and you're exploring, you're sending yourself out there, you're creating new possibilities through both the connections of the soul and the movement of stepping outside of those bounds. But thinking about the word flow and then going back to this idea of money, the interesting thing is we talk about money in terms of flow, <laughs> like a lot of times. We talk about currency, uh, a current, like a river. And that brought me full circle to be thinking about with Kyle and that conversation about cash and generating income. You know, I talked about this a little bit with Megan too, this overarching thing of the money isn't bad. It's just when we start making that everything, it becomes a destination. It becomes a spirit thing that's stifling this straight and narrow but there's another way here, which is to say that currency is something that gets things done, right? It opens up possibilities. It allows for stuff to flow. And it's not to say that it is the flow itself, but it is like the channel that can let us, you know, like if, if you are only just barely surviving, it's very hard to be creative. Because on one hand, you're constantly worried, you're constantly in fear. That seems to be an antithesis. And then on the other hand, too, is you are stuck in this way where there's a self-focus, there's a fear of not being enough, there's a fear of not being okay. But there's also too, just there's not a way to pour something out into the world because your own personal needs are so high. And I think that really, again, circling it back to creativity as being a heroic act, there is a certain degree of having to have a way to outpour, have an abundance. So it's worth thinking about if, if your creativity is stifled, it might be worthy of looking at some of the practicalities for just a while as a means to an end, not really as the end, but recognizing that it could be good to take some of your creative endeavors and let them be a little stifled, a little repetitive, just for the sake of getting a little bit of income in so that you can continue to pour out new things into the world so that you can have an abundance. Really, if we're going for that heroic act, that idea of changing the world through our creativity, which seems to be really the only way to do it, because if we're tired of the same old, same old, we want something new in the world. We want the world to act in a different way. We're going to have to be creative about it. We're going to have to create something new. And 
to do that, I think that there is a lot of being in the moment, being in the flow, because there's another factor that comes into all this, which is to say that when you can be in the here and the now, you can get attuned to what's going on in your internal being. You can get more acquainted with yourself, with your true self, with your deep self, rather than your false self, the one that is the doing self, you know, the uh, I have to be this way so that people will accept me. The you that is behind everything, the soul. And it's that soul, that unique you, um, that unique chunk of everything that is you, that part of you that's connected to the everything but is uniquely yours, that muse that really, truly brings something new into the world, right? Because if you were just trying to copy somebody else, if you're just trying to be what's popular, what is already accepted, then that's nothing new. It's, it's, it's just to say, it, that already exists. But by being yourself, by finding your own artistic style, your own perspective on the world, uh, your own thing, it allows you to open up others because they see the uniqueness of you and that opens up new possibilities within themselves to go like, oh, hey, maybe there's a, there's a uniqueness within me too. This person's doing this really cool thing that I've never seen before. Uh, this person is bringing something to the world. What can I bring into the world? And that's a really cool idea because that is the, that is the path of the bodhisattva. The, uh, this is a Buddhist term for uh, an enlightened one. It's essentially somebody on the path to enlightenment, but with the express intent of basically coming down from the mountain in order to bring the gifts back to the world. So it's kind of an extension of that idea of the shaman. You're going high up on the mountain, getting this new insight, kind of this Moses thing, getting up there and then coming back down with the tablet, coming down with the inside of God himself. And again, I'm just speaking metaphorical, but like bringing something new for the world to see, this little chunk of enlightenment, of oneness, this small slice of everything for the sake of others, which is, is a loving act. It really gets into this idea with creativity that it is a long-standing thing, that there's an aspect to it that is culture care. This vision of what you want the world to be. And then there is this pushing that out into the world in a very small way. None of us are going to change the world. Not individually, not really. Not at this point. I mean, in the past, I think some people really did. There are these individuals that had a profound impact on everybody. But just the nature of our interconnectivity and just that there's more people in the world, we're probably not going to have generation-defining artists anymore. I don't think that that's really going to happen, at least not on the level that it happened in the past. But that's actually not a bad thing. That's a great thing. That's a really cool thing because it frees us up to not look for the fame and not get ourselves deluded into thinking that we are something special. But it turns creativity into a collaborative effort. It turns it into a who's in my bubble and how can I affect them in a small way? And then they're going to affect other people in a small way. And those people are going to affect people in a small way. And it becomes this collective effort of changing the world. And this leads me to another source, which is this book called Culture Care. And Culture Care, again, is another... I don't know how I ended up with so many Christian sources this time around, but there it is. And so I, I don't know if I agree with the entire book, but I do agree with the concept in a lot, that creativity is culture care. This idea that bringing beauty into the world is the best way to change the world. So there's sort of a moral weight to creativity. It's not just having some fun with some art or beauty. And it's more than that. It is turning souls towards the soul of the world and caring for the world as a whole and the universe as a whole by pointing to the things that can't be put into words. And I realize that is a tremendous weight to put on anybody. <laughs> I realize that, like, uh, yeah, if you weren't afraid before about your art, yeah, now here's, here's me throwing a wrench in the mix of like, oh, by the way, 
you're literally changing the world every time you create something, so uh, deal with that. <laughs> but here's the other side of it that's really cool, is going back to that whole thing of if you are an artist because you make art, there's no really failing here. There's no really succeeding either because the pathway is never done. It's an infinite game. There's always something new to come up. But that's really cool because that actually reminds me of a book by Rebecca Solnit called Hope in the Dark. And one of her main things is she says that optimism and despair both create inaction. Because if you're wholly optimistic about everything, if you believe everything's going to work out, you never do anything. So this would be kind of the equivalent of somebody who thinks that they're uh, hot shit and they're just always going to create really good things. They end up not creating really great things because they're convinced that they always will. Eternal optimism doesn't lead to action. But also, neither does eternal despair. Because eternal despair, you just go, oh, well, it's not going to work out anyway, so you never do it. This is the more common one that we know is the type where that, uh, that ego gets in and goes like, you're not enough. Look at you. You suck. But if we can get in between those two, if we can be between optimism and despair, that's where hope lies. And hope is a really active and engaged thing. Because when things are not certain and when things are still unfolding, it causes us to step into action because we believe that it could make a difference, but it also might not. And it's this tension, this synthesis, again, of these opposites, these going through these cycles of optimism and despair that really spurs on to create new things in the world. It's helpful to see all this and just recognize our smallness is part of the equation. If we were fully connected to that oneness, that truth behind everything, the isness of being, we wouldn't really have a way, the ego and the spirit lie in with, with each other, it's the same part of us. We wouldn't do anything if we were already one with everything. But by having hints of this oneness with everything, and then entering back into the smallness of our ego, transformed, the ego serves this really cool purpose of driving us forward and adding new things into the world. And this is really cool because that is a chaotic thing. To sense this bigness, to sense this oneness and then step away from it. You know, that whole bodhisattva thing coming down from the mountain. And then we're in the chaos. We're in the shaman realm. Gosh, if you look at creation stories, they all start from chaos. And then you create a little bit of order out of that. But the order is you're separating light from darkness. You're separating land from water and doing all these things. You're stepping into the opposites and bringing them together. Not in a oneness sort of way, but in a way to kind of have them clash and create something new. The most beautiful things that we know of are things that are in between. You know, between night and day are sunsets. Between the ocean and the land is the beach. All of these things that we find most beautiful are the in-betweens, are the halfways, are the already done and the, and the not done, are the things that are unfolding, that are in motion. And so, when we enter into that in our own, in this halfway state between the soul and the spirit, this isness and the doingness, we step into life. We step into the most beautiful things, the most true things, the beauty and the motion, the unfolding of life itself. And so I think that that's really maybe the core of all this is that is where creativity lies, is in life. And so by stepping into life and choosing to feel it fully, choosing to feel not only the good things, but the bad things, to be okay with both chaos and order, to step into times of rest and times of busyness, to do art 
which is to say, bring new things into the world, new beautiful things, do things a different way versus uh, stepping into some craft, which would be more doing the same thing over again and refining it and getting better at it, which again has its value because it lets us create more art in turn, right? These things amplify each other, cycle through each other and bring more into the world in a really cool way. And it's all about stepping into the fullness of life. By stepping into the fullness of life, you are creating things. By creating things, you're stepping into the fullness of life. And uh, that's really cool because it means that wherever you're at, whatever you're interested in, whatever circumstances you find yourself in, there's room to be creative, which means that there is room to change the world around you, which means that there is room to participate in this dance of the universe. And there's no wrong way to do it except to not step into it. Uh, with that level of excitement, I just want to say is that's the crux of it. Let's step into it. I'm excited to see what you guys step into because there's infinite different ways that we can do that. And everybody can have their own way and we can all spur each other on as everybody's doing their own way and we can all be informed by each other and be changed by each other. So whatever you end up stepping into this week, I would love to hear about it and I would love to maybe get a conversation going so that I can hear about your unique perspective on the isness of everything. <laughs> I think that there's already a few episodes coming up that are going to be like that. My friend Chris is really interested in the underworld and the macabre and the shadow side of life, which is death. And I'm really excited to have a conversation with him about that. For my friend Sam and Zach, I would love to get into deeper into like cycles and seasons and living off the land, especially too, and reconnecting with nature. So a whole nature episode could be great. With Kyle, I might want to talk a little bit about travel versus setting down roots. He's got a lot of experience with that. And I think that that could be a whole episode, you know, the difference between um, uh, seeing the world versus uh, making deep connections in one place. So there's countless different ways that we can do this. And it's not even getting into the uh, Comet Trail episodes. There's certain things that come up in day-to-day -day life that might be interesting to explore more. So if you have any ideas for those as well, please send me a message. Let's, uh, let's get talking. Let's get excited. Let's, let's create some new things in the world. And uh, until then, I love you guys, and thanks for listening. And uh, sorry for the 129-minute... Uh, oh, sorry, that's not quite right hour and 30 minute long episode but thanks for listening and uh we'll see you next time